0: The following resource is from DesiringGod.org. I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. As we continue our study of the Beatitudes, today we'll focus on verse 8 of this chapter, which says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God first thing we learn from this beatitude is that Jesus is very concerned with our hearts. It's not enough to clean up your act on the outside. You can hear him saying, can't you, later on, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and of the plate, but inside you are full of extortion and rapacity. You blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and of the plate that the outside may be clean as well. So the aim of Jesus Christ is not to simply reform the manners of society. The aim of Jesus is to transform sinners, individual people from the inside out. He is very concerned with the heart. So, for example, Jesus would not at all be satisfied with a society where there were absolutely no acts of adultery. Because he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, every man who looks upon a woman to desire her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. The heart is what you are in the secrecy of your thoughts and you're feeling when no one knows but God. That's your heart. And what you are at that invisible root is just as important, I think we could say more important, to the Lord than what you are at the visible branch where the fruit of your life emerges. Man looks on the outward appearance, the Lord said to Samuel, but God looks on the heart. For from the heart are all the issues of life. So the Lord says, What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a man. Make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad. And it's fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it's clear that the heart is utterly crucial to the Lord Jesus. What we are inside, where nobody knows what's going on but God, and sometimes you. He did not come into the world... To help us break bad habits, he came into the world to clean our dirty hearts. Have you thought recently about how helpless, how impotent the, the local and state and federal government is to solve the problems of the deterioration of our society? I was uh, reading about a broadcast that some of you may have seen at the end of January on CBS called The Vanishing Family Crisis in Black America. The focus was on the black family in America, but what they said is true in varying degrees of all the ethnic groups and white majority of our country. They gave this statistic, 58 percent of all black babies are now born to unmarried mothers. And only about 1% of those is given up for adoption. So well over half of all the children in the black community are growing up in homes without any daddy at home. And the long-term effect of that tragedy Nobody can calculate. But what can the government do? What does the government do? All the government can do is try to soften the burden, the financial burden that falls upon those children and those mothers. you see then how amazingly relevant the words of Jesus are? He says... Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, and fornication. Out of the heart comes fornication. All babies born to unmarried mothers and unmarried fathers are born of fornication. And therefore, if Jesus were here this morning, he would say this massive social problem in America is a problem of a heart. It's a problem of impure hearts. Out of the heart comes fornication. If people, white people, black people, red people, yellow people, were pure in heart. They would be blessed. Their society would be blessed. And the impotence of government to do anything about such things would not matter anymore. Now, the reason I mentioned this particular social relevance of Jesus' teaching about purity of heart is not because this beatitude is about that. Emphatically, this beatitude says nothing about that. This beatitude measured by the standards of relevance in our society is utterly irrelevant, isn't it? Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus says, Not for they shall save the legislature millions of dollars of AFDC payments, but for they shall see God. Who cares? The world would say. The reason I mention the social impact of this teaching is not because it's here but because I want our socially sensitive consciences to be able freely, energetically, and zealously to embrace the God-centeredness of this beatitude. In all of its apparent irrelevance, as far as the world's standards is concerned, My own conviction is that the fundamental problem in American society and culture is that we attempt to solve human problems while neglecting the centrality of God in the life of the soul. We are bombarded by human tragedies of poverty and crime and abuse and neglect and war, and manifold injustices of man to man. And we are tempted to agree with the world when they say it is useless pie in the sky by and by to give a hoot whether anybody sees God. Who cares whether anybody sees God or not when the world is falling apart? We're tempted to agree. That is the greatest tragedy of all that in attempting to solve the misery of human problems, we start thinking it doesn't matter whether the longing of the human soul ever sees God. Just get to work on the problem, for goodness sake. But Jesus comes to us this morning and He says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, not first because they will change society, but first, foremost, central, because they will see God for which they were made for which they were destined, and without which nothing in life has meaning. Seeing God is the great goal of being pure. Abandon that goal. No matter what your goal or how noble, abandon that goal, and human culture collapses in ruin. It's just around the corner. So let's ask this morning briefly, what is it to see God? Secondly, what is it to be pure in heart? And thirdly, how are these two things bound together? And I invite you back tonight because tonight's message is simply a continuation of point three, which we'll have to be very brief on this morning. First. What is it to see God? What does Jesus promise here when he says, if you're pure in heart, you will see God. There are at least three things included in seeing God, as I understand it. First, seeing God means being admitted into his presence. At the end of the ninth plague, back in Exodus, Pharaoh is so enraged, he says to Moses, get away from me, take heed to yourself, never see my face again, for in the day that you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. What does the king mean when he says, you'll never see my face again? He means... I'll never I'll never grant you another hearing. You'll never come into my court again. You'll never have admittance to my presence again. Get out of here. It's the same as today when we get on the phone and we're feeling sick. We call a doctor. Oh, can I see Dr. Lundgren today? You don't mean, can I see a photograph? You don't mean... Can I see Him on TV? You don't mean, can I see Him from a distance? You mean, can I get in there and be with Him and let Him take my temperature and work on me? Can I have an admittance to Him? Can we get together? So that's the first thing Jesus means. You will see God. He will grant you an admittance into the kingdom and you will have an appointment with Him and He will be with you. Second thing I think seeing God means is being awestruck by His glory, by a direct experience of His holiness. You remember Job, the end of the story. All of his friends are through talking. Eliphaz is through talking. Elihu is through talking. Bildad so far, and then God talks out of the, the thunderstorm. And when God is through talking directly with Job, he falls on his face and says, I had heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Virtually all of our spiritual sight in this age is mediated, isn't it? We often say, I pray, Lord, help the people see Christ this morning. What do I mean? I mean, mediated by the word and mediated by the providential work of God in his people. We see him today mediated, not immediate. But there will come a day, as the promise in scripture has it, when God will reveal himself to his people immediately. His glory will no longer be inferred from lightnings and mountains and thunderstorms and high hills and crashing thunder. Rather, His glory, as it says in Revelation, will be the light in which we walk. It will just envelop us in an immediate experience of glory and holiness. And that's the second thing I think Jesus means when He says, You shall see God. There will be an immediate experience of the glory of His holiness. And we will be awestruck like Job. And the third thing I think it means is that we will be comforted by His grace. Here's where I get the connection between seeing God and the comfort of His grace. Again and again and again, the psalmists pray like this. Hide not thy face from me. Hear me in the day of my distress. What do you mean? Hide not thy face from me. Hear me. For example, Psalm 27 says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. Hide not thy face from me. You see the connection between grace and not hiding? be gracious to me, hide not thy face from me. Well, the implication is, if He doesn't hide His face, He reveals His face. He lets me see His face. He makes His face to shine upon me. And therefore, seeing the Lord's face is is an experience of grace and warmth and reception and healing and comfort and consolation. So that in the end of the age, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, For they shall be admitted to His presence. They shall be awestruck by a direct experience of His holiness and glory. And it will all be an experience of grace and comfort and warmth and the the bright shining of a smiling face. Not the hidden face of a distant God. I'm sure there's more to it, but at least those three things, I believe, are implied in the promise, they shall see God. What is it to be pure in heart, then, secondly? Søren Kierkegaard, Danish thinker from a century ago, wrote a book one time entitled Purity of heart is to will one thing. That is a good definition of biblical purity. Let me show you from the scripture why I think that is a good definition. Provided the one thing you will is the glory of God. Turn with me to Psalm 24. This has been woven into our service so far, and so here it is again, because probably Psalm 24 is the closest Old Testament parallel to this Beatitude. Psalm 24, let's read verses 3 and 4. Try to figure out what you think the psalmist means by a pure heart. Verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And then here comes the definition, I think. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Now, what is a pure heart? Well, a pure heart is a heart that has nothing to do with falsehood. See that? Who does not lift up his soul or delight in or go out after or depend on what is false. And secondly, a pure heart is painstakingly truthful and free from deceit. See that? It does not swear deceitfully. Now, what is a heart doing when it deceives? It is willing to do one thing, and it is willing that people think it's doing another thing. It is willing to feel one thing, and willing that people not know that it is feeling this. It is deceitful and thus double. Willing two things. I'm going to be this, and I don't want anybody to know it. A contrary and split heart. So I think Kierkegaard perhaps took his cue from Psalm 24, verse 4. The pure heart does not swear deceitfully. It wills one thing, the truth of God. Now, there's an even closer explanation to this definition in James. If you'd like to turn with me to James, chapter 4. Perhaps this is the text from which Kierkegaard took his cue when he said purity of heart is to will one thing. James, chapter 4, verse 8. Now, notice the connections between this verse And Psalm 24, they are really remarkable. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. There's the ascending of the hill. Who will descend the hill into the holy place? Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. See that? Straight out of Psalm 24. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And then here comes the key phrase. You men of... Double mind. There it is. You couldn't ask for a plainer recap of the split heart, the divided self. Two things are being willed in this mind. There's a double mind and therefore it needs to be purified because purity is to will one thing. Now, what is the division in this man's heart in verse 8? Let's go up to verse 4 and it's laid out for us as plain as day. Verse 4, unfaithful creatures, or literally adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So what's the double line? Somebody who's got two allegiances and cannot bring them onto one. The world. Oh, there's so many things there I like. I want so much of what the world has to give. And God, he's got eternal life and I don't want to lose that. So I want God too. And you're rent like a wife who has a husband and a boyfriend. That's literally the meaning of verse 4. Adulteresses. Having a husband in heaven playing the coquette on the earth. Purity of heart is to will one thing. The truth of God and the glory of God and not to be divided. Now, if you were to go back to Jesus' teaching and ask Him, did you say anything like this? Did you make it plain that purity of heart is to will one thing? I think He would say, This is the first and great commandment, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart. Not 30%, not 80%, not divided, not loving God with 90%, loving the world with 10%. All your heart, that is a pure heart. Purity of heart is to will one thing, the truth of God, the glory of God, the worth of God in everything we do. Isn't that why Paul said, whether you eat or whether you drink, in other words, the nitty gritty ordinary things of life when you get up and go to bed, do them all to the glory of God, bring unity into your life. So that your doctoring and your lawyering and your nursing and your carpentry and your housework have unity. One thing is being willed in this life. God. No boyfriend or girlfriend competing with our heavenly husband. Well, there are other texts. I'll just mention one, we won't look it up, First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.5. The aim of our charge is love, issuing from a good conscience, a pure heart, and faith unfeigned. See the connection again? Unfeigned, undivided. A pure heart is a heart that doesn't have a split faith, a hypocritical faith, sometimes going out to God on Sunday and then trusting in money all week long. Purity of heart is to will one thing, God's truth, God's value. The aim of the pure heart is to align itself with God. And that leaves us with one last observation. What's the connection between these two. A pure heart that wills one thing, the glory of God, and beholding or seeing God. Well, Jesus gives one answer. It's only part of the answer, but it's true. Namely, purity of heart is a prerequisite for seeing God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The more impure, the less you see. No purity, No sight. Impure people aren't admitted to God's presence, aren't stunned and awestruck at His glory, and do not receive the shining of His face as an act of grace. Impure people stand under the judgment of God. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for the holiness without which no one will what? See the Lord. Can you paraphrase that? Blessed are the holy in heart, for they shall see God. I'm sure you can. That's exactly what it means. It means the same thing, which leaves us all crying out, Who then can be saved? So if the disciples ask Jesus, Who then can be saved? Because there's not a pure person in this room from one standpoint. Nobody went through this past week without sinning. And Jesus' answer comes back, with men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And I close where I began. There are three steps to purity, and I invite you to take them as we close again. One, a cry to God for His sovereign creator work. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And you can pray that this morning even if you committed adultery last week like David did, or murder. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And secondly, look away from yourself to the one who purchased a purity that we could have never achieved on our own. Titus 3.14 He gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify for himself a people zealous for good deeds. And thirdly, because it says in Acts 15, 9, God made no distinction between black or white or Jew or Gentile, but he cleansed their hearts by faith. Faith is the instrument of the sovereign God by which he weans you away from your allegiance to the world, by which he brings unity into your heart and makes you feel. And I invite you, I urge you, I plead with you, engage in those three acts. A prayer for the creative work of God, a looking away to the Savior, and an embracing by faith of what He did without and what He will do within. Let's stand for prayer. Oh Lord God, we want to be pure. We long to be pure. Because we want to see you. We want our eyes to be unclouded. They are so easily distracted by the busyness of the world, even in its innocence. Not to mention the sinful temptations we battle with day by day. Oh God, create, I pray, a clean heart in this your people. And we will give you glory as the one who can make our hearts pure within and grant us a sight of yourself. Lord, the people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from DesiringGod.org. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy and share from thousands of resources on our site, including books, sermons, articles, and more, available free of charge. DesiringGod.org exists to help you treasure Jesus more than anything else. Because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him.